Hello, dear listeners and friends. This is the 400th original episode of On Being. And before today's podcast begins, I just want to say a few words of gratitude. I believe that the world we want to inhabit is emerging, one life, one conversation, and one community at a time. This is the wisdom of my conversation partners across the years. It is the reality of social transformation across the ages. And it anchors what we do and how we're evolving at the On Being Project. These days, we call ourselves a nonprofit media and public life initiative. And it has truly felt like everyone in our listening, reading, lived community has been building this organization with us, showing us what we need to do next, affirming that it is right and good to take the questions of what is life-giving as seriously as the headlines of death-dealing, to take the great civilizational challenges of our time out of political and analytical boxes and meet them with moral imagination, social creativity, and joy. I am so proud of the capacity and team we've deepened in this past year, a beautiful foundation for what is unfolding and to come. As my brilliant colleagues innovate on digital media, through new podcasts and tools for the art of living, and in new social healing initiatives and collaborations, we are creating deeper feedback loops to walk ever more responsively in service of our tender, hurting world. This means walking more closely alongside you. We're so grateful for what you've already made possible through your letters and ideas that amaze us, through your welcome of all of our experiments and inventions, and for gifts of financial support that literally keep us going. I am overflowing with gratitude. On Being is brought to you by the John Templeton Foundation, harnessing the power of the sciences to explore the deepest and most perplexing questions facing humankind. To learn more, subscribe to their newsletter, Possibilities, and discover the work Templeton supports on topics from curiosity and kindness to evolution, black holes, and the origins of life. Sign up at templeton.org forward slash possibilities. As a longtime civil engineer by day and poet by night, the Cuban-American writer Richard Blanco has straddled the many ways a sense of place merges with human emotion to form the meaning of home and belonging. In 2013, he became the fifth poet to read at a presidential inauguration, also the youngest and the first immigrant. At Chautauqua, I invited him to speak and read from his books, especially How to Love a Country. The thoughtfulness, elegance, and humor of Richard Blanco's poetry and his person captivated the crowd, and we offer all of this up to you for Thanksgiving. A week before Thanksgiving, I explained to my abuelita about the Indians and the Mayflower, how Lincoln set the slaves free. I explained to my parents about the Purple Mountain's majesty, one if by land, two if by sea. The cherry tree, the tea party, the amber waves of grain, the masses yearning to be free, liberty and justice for all until finally they agreed, this Thanksgiving, we would have turkey. As well as pork. Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. I spoke with Richard Blanco as part of Chautauqua's 2019 summer season in the historic outdoor amphitheater. Richard, you have written, every story begins inside a story that's already begun by others. Long before we take our first breath, there's a plot underway with characters and a setting we did not choose, but which were chosen for us. What I want to do for the next hour here is kind of explore the story of our time a bit through the story of your life and the way you've captured both of those things um, in the language and form of poetry. Um, you were 45 days old yep. when you landed in America. That's the definition of something that was chosen for you. Exactly. <laughs> Um, yeah, how, just if I asked you that large question, just to get going, you know, how would you start to tell the story of our time through the story of your life? Where would you begin? Well, I think, as I, as I like to say, um, I was made in Cuba, assembled in Spain, and imported to the United States. It gets, <laughs> it gets even, even a little crazier. So my mom, 
my mom left seven months pregnant from Cuba. I was born in Madrid and then they 45. They went to exile. Exile. First to Madrid. First to Madrid, where, yeah. so where I was born. And then 45 days later, I emigrated once again. So by the time I was 45 days old, I belonged to three countries and had lived in two world-class cities. And I think writers, I think artists in general, I think all of us, when something like that really some kind of origin story like that really imprints us. And of course, I don't know it's imprinting at the time, but when I start writing and thinking about that big question, where am I from, where do I belong in this world? Um, I think the idea of home was always a big question. Right. It's still a question that I'm still a story that I'm still trying to unpack. And it's gone through many arcs and um, periods of love and hate, periods of confusion and delight. So all that is really sort of still what I'm working on even in this latest book. I think in a way, a question that Whitman was also working on, what is an American yeah. and what does it mean to be an American? What does it mean to belong to a country really, in yeah. essence, in this day and age where that idea is just becoming a little blurry? Shifting, yeah. Shifting, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you could say that that question of home, what home is and how it feels and how we claim it is part of the human drama for everyone. Mm -hmm. But when it is an immigrant story, it just gets, it's in technicolor from the very beginning. Um, and we're going to talk some more about that. Sure. I, um, I wonder, was there a religious or spiritual aspect to your childhood, to those, to, the, to your formative years? You know, I guess I grew up um, Roman Catholic, Cuban, Latino, Roman Catholic, I went to Catholic parochial school all my life um, since kindergarten. And I think there was an interesting base set up there for me, but you know, nothing that I really connected at the moment in, at that age, but I think it came back. It came back somehow. Writing opened that door, that connection to the divine, to some connection to the universe, to things that be. And I considered writing my spiritual practice, but again, I think there was, there was a base to that. And, and also a little more complicated than just Roman Catholic, the Afro-Cuban uh, idea of santeria and ancestral worship. So that also made it into the writing in a way, because so much of my motivation to write some of these poems was to document the lives of my ancestors in some ways, their story, their journey, the story I came, I came from, as you said. Yeah. I feel like as I've delved into your work, like the full body of your work, um, you are reflecting on and articulating aspects of, yeah, again, like the immigration story of humanity in a way that is, that, that, that with a complexity and with all kinds of layers, that although this is a moment in American life, not for the first time, but right. again, <laughs> where, you know, we, we speak about immigration often in terms of issues and news stories. And I feel like you bring to life a fullness of that experience, which is a human experience. And so I really, I want to kind of draw that out because I feel like it is very present, very relevant to how, like, we are all inhabiting this moment. And our, I mean, you were, I did read in your, um, I think your memoir that you said, you, you know, you grew up learning about America and kind of internalizing America through reruns of Brady Bunch, <laughs> Leave it to Beaver, and My Three Sons. And when I read that, I thought, oh, that's terrible. And then I realized I watched all those right. shows also. Right. That's what I grew up on, so we've all come a long way. <laughs> I, I'm binging Donna Reed right now. Um, <laughs> um, the, you, know, I, I, you know, it's interesting because I think, you know, when I first began writing, um, and again, I, I, I say that as a sort of a starting point where I started to ask these deep questions. As I always say, writing makes me think and thinking makes me write, and there's a circularity to that as you dive deeper into questions and into yourself and into your soul, into your mind and heart. Um, yeah, you learn when you write, you also learn what you think that you didn't know you were thinking. Right, <laughs> exactly, and that's yeah. part of what keeps me addicted to it. Yeah. But the, the story of writing, um, at first I shied away from this idea, of who wants to hear about some such a particular story about a little chubby gay kid from a working class family in Miami? Who wants to hear that story? And I think um, it's always been a question that I've tried to negotiate and then thinking about audience and readers, right? And thinking about whether or not, how am I a catalyst? How am I a bridge to not only understanding my life, but understanding for that others can understand this idea of the immigrant experience or exile experience. 
And through the years, to get to, to sort of uh, zero in on what you were saying, I finally embraced the idea that in some ways, especially in our contemporary society, we're all in exile. Yeah. We all have immigrant experiences of some kind that weren't happening exactly 100 years ago. I mean, you move from Miami to Seattle, you're going to have an immigrant experience, right? right. You move from right. Chicago to, uh, to San Antonio, you get the picture. And I think what Latino writers and immigrant writers or ethnic writers have been doing, and I count myself not single-handedly, but in a pantheon of a kind of a body of work, is set a template for what is, I think, a very contemporary trauma that we're going through in some ways of dislocation, location. Um, you know, families didn't d disperse the way, just even 15 right. years ago, families well, yeah. didn't disperse as much. Um, we, can, we can be exiled in social media too sometimes. We can be isolated. We, and I always try to think, what does this particular story I have to offer universally? And try to write it from that perspective. We've all asked that big question, what is home? What is home, yeah. You know, it's, a, it's like asking, what is love? You yeah. know, and it changes. And, and it it's changes, complex, right. And it, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, something that just is kind of feels um, like a, a large context for a lot of your reflection is on the one hand, and I think especially from childhood on, there's a, at one and the same time, kind of that, that idealized mm -hmm. idea of America that came through the Brady Bunch um, and comes through in many other ways, but also a yearning for the lost home, I mean, a, a deep curiosity. I mean, you sometimes describe it as, just in passing, as my parents' island paradise, right, Cuba. Right. And there's this, I wanted to read, there's this, um, in the in City of a Hundred Fires, this is how you start a poem called Havani, Havana. 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 Yeah. <laughs> in the beginning, before God created Cuba, the earth was <laughs> chaos, empty of form and without music. <laughs> the spirit of God stirred over the dark tropical waters and God said, let there be music. And a soft conga began a one-two beat in background of the chaos. There you go. <laughs> you, read, you read that wonderfully, by the oh, way. Thank you. Because well, thank it's you. always a little weird when people read it. That was like perfect timing. I loved it. Oh uh, well, wonderful. <laughs> that makes me happy. Um, but then I wonder also if you would read, kind of as a as a as a counterpart to that in. Um, in this book, page three, America. Mm -hmm. Starting, do you have this one? Okay, so, I, I no, I have it. So I have it for you. I told you, you're not going to have to do any work if you don't want to. <laughs> no, it's on page four. I did say to Richard that um, because this is radio, um, short poems are better. And he doesn't really do short poems. No, Cubans don't write <laughs> short poems. <laughs> um, but his po your poems are very narrative. Right, so, exactly. So um, we're going to hear some great poetry um, today. So maybe start, because this is just so wonderful, like start here at number four, and then you can read through. So the context here, just so everyone knows, it, Thanksgiving is, of course, for an immigrant, for and almost any immigrant group, it's just one of those things we don't get. <laughs> and we try really hard. And in, in Latinos, or at least in my, in, in my Cuban community, we call it sangiving like San Pedro or San Ignacio, so it's, it's a whole other kind of feast day. Um, and, and what you're saying is true, there's still sort of a yearning between this mythic homeland that is Cuba, that I don't really know, and this mythic homeland that is the Brady Bunch house, which I want to buy someday. Um, <laughs> and so you, you'll see this sort of Ricky, this is all in the context of Thanksgiving and Ricky trying to negotiate those two those, those two yearnings. A week before Thanksgiving, I explained to my abuelita about the Indians and the Mayflower, how Lincoln set the slaves free. I explained to my parents about the Purple Mountain's majesty, one if by land, two if by sea. The cherry tree, the tea party, the amber waves of grain, the masses yearning to be free, liberty and justice for all until finally they agreed 
This Thanksgiving, we would have turkey. <laughs> as well as pork. Abuelita prepared the poor fowl as if committing an act of treason, faking her enthusiasm for my sake. Mama set a frozen pumpkin pie in the oven and prepared candied yams. Following instructions, I had to translate from the marshmallow bag. <laughs> the, table, the table was arrayed with gladiolas. The platter turkey loomed at the center on plastic silver from Woolworths. Everyone sat in green velvet chairs we had upholstered with clear vinyl, except Dio Carlos and Toti seated in the folding chairs from the Salvation Army. I uttered a bilingual blessing, and the turkey was passed around like a game of Russian roulette. <laughs> Dry, Dioberto complained, and proceeded to drown the lean slices with pork fat drippings and cranberry jelly, esa mierda roja, as he called it. Faces fell when Mama presented her ochre pie. Pumpkin, calabaza, was a home remedy for ulcers, not a dessert. <laughs> Tia Maria made three rounds of Cuban coffee. Then Abuelo and Pepe cleared the living room furniture, put on a Celia Cruz LP, and the entire family began to merengue over the linoleum of our apartment, sweating rum and coffee, sweating rum and coffee, until they remembered it was 1970 and 46 degrees in America. After repositioning the furniture, an appropriate darkness filled the room. Tioberto was the last to leave. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, with civil engineer and poet Richard Blanco at the Chautauqua Institution. <laughs> so before we move on and keep going with a, more poetry, <clears throat> I do want to note that although most Americans first came to know about you as the poet of an, a presidential inauguration, right. you uh, were a civil engineer before you began to write. And I, were you still a full-time civil engineer when you delivered the inaugural um, yes, yes, yeah. I've been a practicing so civil engineer all this my life. So this has essentially been your career, which I find fascinating, and at first I think it might sound like a surprising uh, juxtaposition, but the more I thought about it, it makes a lot of sense, because it's mm -hmm. about design and structure and patterns, right? And Yes, you got that, you hit that right on the nose. I mean, as careers, they're obviously different, right? Career paths and sort of, you're not in a cubicle all day. But um, I learned a lot about writing poetry from my math classes in terms of structure, logic, patterns. As they say, musicians say, music is very mathematical, right? Yes. So, so that lent itself to writing. And vice versa, um, being a civil engineer, I had to engage with a lot of public, a lot of communities and towns. And, and being, a, being a writer, being a poet, which is in some ways a study, a, partly a study of human nature, really built my sort of skills in terms of trying to you know, understand people. There's no nuances of what they're saying, what they're not saying and tease out of them their emotional relationship to place and home and projects that I, were civil projects for everyone to enjoy, which ironically is what my poetry is about, trying to find a psychological home, but also in, this, in, the, my, in my engineering, I was in a way creating brick and mortar home, right? A sense of home by, with brick and mortar. Um, and it's really interesting because I think it speaks also, you, got, you hit it right on the nose, like it's not that different, but I think it speaks to our general uh, attitude, well, and still how we silo education and, oh, you're an engineer, it's getting worse and worse, right. I think, these days. Right. Uh, you're an engineer, you don't need to learn how to write. My job was 50% writing, and I didn't start writing until I stepped into my consulting office and had to write, and that actually led to my love of language in, in a way too. Right. It was, I started exploring language and then I got deeper and deeper into it and became the go-to person and the senior partner because of my writing, right? Yeah. Your job, yeah. an engineering proposal that gets in a $40 million job is nothing but a narrative, right? An argument, a persuasion of how our firm is the best firm, how this, our vision for the project. But it is funny sometimes because sometimes interviewers get it wrong. They're like, you know, the, the romantic story is that I was forced to study engineering because I'm a working class, you know, family. And then right. the, I discovered poetry and the clouds parted and the cherubs right. came down and like, 
And I was like, and I always, yeah. my response is, you know, I really, really wanted to go full time at DePorge because there was so much money. But, <laughs> yeah. but I really felt an ethical ab obligation to stay in engineering. And so <laughs> there, there's kind of a practical matter, but I loved the balance too. And it created, for me at least, I'm a left brain, right person. I love the balance. And I guess I just want to say for writers out there too, and those, those um, especially young writers that are thinking about becoming writers for, as professional writers, that just because you have another career doesn't make you a sellout. In fact, as long as you keep a focus on your vision and you find something that works for you and every journey and how you come to do something is unique. Um, and I'm proud of, I'm proud of having that, those sort of seemingly contradictory um, careers and, um, and vocations. Yeah, yeah, and I, <clears throat> I, love, I love the way you describe what is actually true that the that the that the what is it, that the emotional and psycho practical and emotional needs um, that you need in a good design mm -hmm. that like poetry is another way of delving into those things, um, and we do try to separate. We pretend like these are separate disciplines when it's about being whole. Yeah, it's, it's all one thing. I mean, if we think thing. if we think upon sort of any innovation or any sort of breakthrough, it's really about synthesis of yeah. seemingly disparate. Uh, or non-related knowledge or pieces yeah. of, of knowledge. My sense of place, have like, it's not quite a theory, but the way I've been thinking about it lately as an engineer, that everything has a physical landscape, an emotional landscape, yeah. and a natural landscape. And I think those, the way those three things combine form our sense of place and belonging and connection. Yes, so, <laughs> so all of that is another way to speak to the true complexity of these themes that for you are so important, for all of us are so important, of place and belonging and the fullness of that and our wrestling with that. I mean, I have to say, one thing that really stuck out with me as I have gotten to know you is uh, that also is part of this story of what it means to be an American is that Richard Blanco is not really, it's a part of your name. Yes. <laughs> right? I mean, I interviewed Martin Sheen, who is Ramon Estevez. And, um, and my, my, our executive producer, um, who I've always known to have two names, right. it turned out, after I'd known her for many years, that she's reclaimed, she's a Colombian-American, right. all of her names. So, so tell us your, your full name that you were born with. My full name, and so, uh, is technically uh, Ricardo de Jesus Blanco Sanchez Valdez Molina because I was born in Spain and they tack them all on. <laughs> but it, it's funny because naming is like one of those things about sort of also sort of origin stories. Naming, naming is such an interesting thing and how we rename ourselves or not. Yeah. Um, I love how rock stars rename like Freddie Mercury. Right? <laughs> like yeah. there, there's, there's the name you're given and then there's the name that you, you take on or you feel you, you describes you or captures you in a different way. The problem, not the problem, but the backstory beyond that, that I don't think I've ever quite written about. <laughs> but, so I was named after Richard Dixon. Um, <laughs> and um, <laughs> because it had nothing to do politically, because my parents are in Spain, I'm born, they just wanted to come to the United States, so I was named Ricardo after Richard Nixon. Jesus, because <laughs> my middle name is Jesus, because my mom on that transit line of flight said, if we make it alive, I'll, his middle name, her middle name will be Jesus. And, right. and then, um, as I look back the way I would have liked to rename myself, yes. which would have been like, I put Richard because I'd like the contrast of the Anglo and, right. and, and, then, the, and then white, um, you know. Is it true, Blanco. did you ever think about calling yourself Richard White? Well, my, my, my standing joke now is Dick Jesus White. <laughs> that's, that's <laughs> name and, and I think it's comical because in Protestant in, in Protestants world, n nobody names their kids Jesus, but it's so no. common in, in yeah. Roman Catholic yeah. Latino society yeah. to, but it, I, it, it just doesn't translate. So, I mean, Richard Nixon and Jesus, and they wonder why I became a poet and an engineer. Like, hello. <laughs> 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 um, 
I feel like we could keep going on that for the next yeah. 45 minutes. It would be really fun, but we're going to change. We're going to turn the corner. Um, we at On Being, we have put poets on the air the last two election weekends, and I think we'll probably keep going with that practice. Um, uh, I lived in divided Berlin in the 1980s. I've experienced in my lifetime how poetry rises up in culture after culture, especially in moments of crisis, um, especially when official discourse and words are failing us or inadequate for what we have to grapple with. And when we really have to reach for new language and new ways with language, among other things, to give voice to what we need and want to give voice to. Um, I, you know, in a way, it's a corollary to what you described mm. about the synergy between engineering and poetry, that we have to meet the practical needs with our emotional needs, the psychological yeah, with the yeah. political. Um, you've quoted Elizabeth Bishop somewhere saying, it's not about what's said, but about what's not said. And I also feel like poetry leaves room for silence. Mm, and yes. poetry um, makes room for questions that are unanswerable and that for them to sit there. Yeah, I, I, I'm starting to see it more connected to the idea of how music happens in us, happens as in the writing of the poem and also how it imprints in us um, in the same ways that sometimes we can hear a song and we're not exactly sure the words are saying something, but there's an imprint that's something we can't always place a finger on. Yeah. Um, my father moved through dooms of love, through sames of am, through halves of give. I have no idea what that means. But there's a pleasure, and I actually don't want to break it down that much, but there's a beautiful pleasure. I know what it means on another level. And those empty spaces, like in music, I think that poetry affects us that way, and it's not usually taught that way. It's taught like, let's pin down the frog in anonymity class right. and let's pull it apart. And that's important too, to a certain degree. Yeah. But um, it's not usually taught to just let it be in us and let it breathe in us. I don't know where the Hotel California is, <laughs> right, I get yeah. there, but I love that song. And, and how we, we can read poems over and over, All, everybody has a favorite poem, right? Okay. We can read that poem over and over again. We rarely go back and reread no, re novels or memoir. Right. Well, so I think what I'd really like to do is get into your newest volume, How to Love a Country. Is it right at the beginning of this book you have this line, Tell me with whom you walk, and I'll tell you who you are. You have that in Spanish and English. Yeah. Is that, is that you, you don't attribute that to anybody, is it? It's never been attributed to any, even an, an anecdote of a story or any one person. Yeah. But it's, it's, it's a really popular sort of idiom, a saying in Spanish. Dime, dime con quien andas y te diré quien, quien eres, yeah. I took a lot of chances in this book because I broke out of just talking about my sense of home or my Americanness, or um, and started, like I say, I, I think I moved from the poetry of I to the poetry of we. And so I started thinking, who am I walking with? Who has come before me? Who has walked before me, right? And this idea of ancestor, again, of stories, you're born into someone else's story, right. and then you walk, and then you give that story to someone else. But I was thinking, who are we, right? Who are we as a country? And, um, and how are we walking together? And there's a, a beautiful also, um, maybe it was inspired also my department, uh, one of the department heads at uh, my alma mater, um, she's, uh, she has a saying from the Caribbean that says, walk good. <laughs> which is your, what your mom tells you, walk good. Right. And so, and I was thinking about, you know, what is the company past and present? Who are we walking with? Um, and how together, um, what are we doing? After a short break, more with Richard Blanco. And you can find this show again in our rich and deep archive of poets and poetry at onbeing.org. Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute 
helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today with Richard Blanco, the Cuban-American civil engineer turned poet who read at the 2013 presidential inauguration. We're speaking as part of the 2019 summer season of the Chautauqua Institution, and we're exploring themes of home and belonging, physical and emotional, personal and communal, as Richard Blanco takes them up in his latest book, How to Love a Country. I said to you before we came out of here, if, if you feel called to read anything from any of those books, you may, you may do that. But I'm going to propose some. Sure, I, sure. I, I pulled some out that, um, uh, you know, it's interesting. I, you, you use the word immigrant. You know, that, that's kind of the way you describe your family story, I think, most often. Or, you know, you exile a bit. I, I had a conversation last year about Hannah Arendt, um, who wrote a lot about you know, exile. Mm-hmm. And the conversation I was having with the, with the scholar of Hannah Arendt, who is, works with refugees now, right. is how, you know, what happens to our imagination about these humans when we use the word immigrant or refugee, or what I'm so aware of now is what the word migrant mm-hmm. has done, how I think that language makes an abstraction of people and, and creates an ability for us to separate. Anyway, I, this is just on my mind. And, and then, you know, you wrote this poem called Complaint of El Rio Grande, mm-hmm. which is, again, looking at this entire drama from a whole different angle, right. which is this natural piece of the natural world that is crossed and that in that moment makes of people whatever that thing Something is. Something transforms. You right? want to read that one? Sure, I'd love to. Page nine. Give me a lot to think about there. <laughs> but we'll read it first, like you said. So uh, this, uh, I've been hearing about sort of the Mexican-U.S. border since I was a kid. And I think we all, in some ways, are just sort of had it with this issue, right? In the context of, you mean to tell me that we can't, not just as countries, as, as a Western hemisphere, come to some kind of fa- fair, amicable, humane, uh, to this problem that is not, we're making it a problem, right? And it gets abstracted and it gets politicized, overly politicized. And I thought, how can I do this is let the river speak. And let the river, so this is a persona of a boy, poem in the voice of the river, to sort of let all humanity have it. <laughs> the river sort of pointing a finger yeah. at us, so to speak. Complaint of a Rio Grande. I was meant for all things to meet, to make the clouds pause in the mirror of my waters, to be home to fallen rain that finds its way to me to turn eons of loveless rock into love-sick pebbles and carry them as humble gifts back to the sea which brings life back to me. I felt the sun flare, praised each star flocked about the moon long before you did. I've breathed air you'll never breathe. Listened to songbirds before you could speak their names, before you dug your oars in me, before you created the gods that created you. Then countries, your invention. Maps jigsawing the world into colored shapes, caged in bold lines to say you're here, not there. You're this, not that. To say yellow isn't red, red isn't black. Black is not white. To say mine, not ours to say war and believe that life's worth is relative. You named me Big River, drew me blue, thick, to divide, to say spick and Yankee, to say wetback and gringo. You split me in two, half of me us, the rest them. But I wasn't meant 
to drown children. Hear mother's cries, never meant to be your geography, a line, a border, a murderer. I was meant for all things to meet. The mirrored clouds and sun's tingle, bird songs in the quiet moon, the wind and its dust, the rush of mountain rain, and us. Blood that runs in you is water flowing in me. Both life, both truth we know to know, be one in one another. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> That's it. Thank you. That poem still does things to me. Like I'm still learning myself. It's really interesting the creative process and, and how that connects. Like I always say my poems are smarter than me. I'm not that smart, right? <laughs> like I, I go through this this whole physiological experience when I read that poem again yeah. and thinking about that river, being that river. Yeah. Would you read America the Beautiful again? Oh, sure. Page 66. 6-6. Six, six. Part of this poem was, I, the title of this book, How to Love a Country, is a statement. It's also a question. It's also a, a self-help book um, <laughs> for today. Yeah. <laughs> a how-to book, maybe. Um, one thing, again, like you were saying about language, like why I write a book that I didn't want it to, I, I didn't want it to be a one-beat kind of book, and I also wanted to explore different things. And, and I, I didn't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater and be poems just of protest. And I just went back to this poem to that of patriotism, but the kind of innocent patriotism that you feel as a kid that pure kind of love for ideals, and at least for me, and what this country stands for, I think still stand for. And so this is going back to that space. Uh, and uh, I'll sing a little bit, which is, you can leave if you want. Um, you, have a, you have your chance now. So it's America the Beautiful, which is obviously a reference to the, the song. How I've sang. Oh, beautiful, like a psalm at church with my mother, her Cuban accent scaling up every vowel. Oh, beautiful, <laughs> yet in perfect pitch, delicate and tuned to the radiant beams of stained glass light. How she taught me to fix my eyes on the crucifix as we sang our thanks to our savior for this country that saved us. Our voices hymns as passionate as the organ piping towards the very heavens. How I sang for spacious skies, closer to those skies while perched on my father's sunbeat shoulders, towering above our first 4th of July parade. How the timber through our bodies mingled, breathing, singing as one with the brass notes of the marching band playing the only song he ever learned in English. How I dared to sing it at assembly with my teenage voice cracking for amber waves of grain that I'd never seen, nor the purple mountain majesties, but could imagine them in each verse rising from my gut. Every exclamation of praise I belted out until my throat hurt, America, and again, America. How I began to read Nietzsche and doubt God, yet still wished for God to shed his grace on thee and crown thy good with brotherhood, how I still want to sing, despite all the truth of our wars and our gunshots ringing louder than our school bells, our politicians smiling lies at the mic, the deadlock of our divided voices shouting over each other instead of singing together, how I want to sing again, beautiful or not, just to be in harmony, from sea to shining sea, with the only country I know enough to know how to sing for. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today at Chautauqua with Richard Blanco. 
the Cuban-American civil engineer and poet. Thank you. I sometimes ask um, at the end of a conversation uh, this question, what, what, what's, what makes you dis- what's making you despair right now and where are you finding hope? And I feel like we're so articulate about our despair. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, and I feel like your, your, um, what is making your heart ache, we've heard. I, I would like to ask you where you're finding joy, where you're finding hope right now. Sure. Um, I think um, it's interesting. I, I was just at that point, I do a small radio segment, which we, it's called The Village Voice, and we share poems, sometimes yeah. mine, yeah. 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 And, uh, this uh, it has it'll air next week, but I called it National Oblivion Day, um, and the poems were like, I can't take it anymore. <laughs> like, and it was also like one of the great things that poetry does is it allows us to just go into that space so deeply that somehow it, we we let go of it, right? In some ways, um, so I'm looking for poetry that does that, um, that lets me acknowledge and be okay with where we are right now, um, and, and that helps a little bit. Um, but I'm trying to think, um, um, I guess what keeps me hopeful, and this is something that I, I it's sort of in between all this despair and, and, and fear and, and, and apprehension, I, I think one of the most beautiful things that I see, and it happened first with the ban on, on, on Muslim and whatnot, that people, at least in my lifetime, for the first time were standing up for something that didn't affect them directly. That is a democracy, right? And so I just love, I just love that we're stepping up and we're realizing, no, okay, this is, well, I, can, I, I don't have to go to that protest, not about me, but it's that poem from the, you know, first they came for the songs, I remember that poem, and I think we're finally, uh, we're not doing that. <laughs> we're not waiting for them to come for us. We are stepping up and realizing that the quality of life, the, 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 the virtue of this country depends on every human being's story uh, to a certain degree, that our happiness depends on other people's happiness. And we're moving from a space of dependence to realizing our interdependence. Yeah. And I just think that's beautiful. Even with the questions, I mean, this book was scary in some ways because I'm broaching subjects that somehow I also felt I didn't have permission to write about, like, you know, about Mexican immigration? Well, no, I mean, there's, there's a common ground there, right? Um, race, gender, all these kinds of issues, and I think that's what I'm trying to do, is I'm also trying to embrace everyone else's experiences and perhaps coming up with language together or saying, you know, me too, right? So I, I just love that that's happening, and it's hard to see between the 24-hour newsreel and, yeah. the, and the, the clips, and, the, and so... It becomes, becomes a discipline, like almost like a spiritual discipline, to take that seriously too. Right, right. You know, it's a way of us, some of us, enough of us collectively living this phrase that you have at the beginning of the book, How to Love a Country. Tell me with whom you walk and I'll tell you who you are. So it's us expanding that sense of who we are. And realizing that we're walking together. Yeah. Or we need to, we've always have, but actually acknowledging that now. Yeah. So the book begins with the Declaration of Interdependence. Mm -hmm. Is there a story behind this poem? Um, Yeah, there's um, one, one, um, again, finding language, finding another angle, finding another dialogue, and how easily stereotyped and typecast we, uh, people can become in the news and also how we do it to ourselves, right? Like, oh, you know, you drive a red pickup truck, therefore you must be this person. You shop at Whole Foods, therefore you must be this kind of person. Um, you drive a Subaru, therefore you must be this kind of person. And realizing that that's really something that's been slowly chipping away at our brains, like this sort of immediate sort of I wouldn't say judgment, but uh, a, a typecasting um, that sometimes we're not even aware. So I just wanted to break down some of those stereotypes and create empathy across those stereotypes. But it also ultimately comes from a, a saying, a greeting from the Zulu people that was the real inspiration here. Um, the greeting, they don't say, 
good morning, like we do, like we did this morning, <laughs> like, good morning, <laughs> I need coffee, you know? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, um, they look at one another right in the eyes and say, I see you. And there's an incredible power in seeing and being acknowledged. And if I'm not mistaken, the reply is, I'm here to be seen and I see you. And so we've just, we're not seeing each other as clearly and I think this poem was trying to let us see each other clearly. And it's got declaration of, again, I think I mentioned the next sort of evolvement in our consciousness is from dependence to, inter, to independence is really interdependence, right? That's really where as a country, as a people, as a family, as a as world, a species. as a species, if yeah. we don't do that, yeah. you know, in the face of, well, we're, we're touch climate, but, <laughs> but um, declaration of interdependence. And these are excerpts from the declaration of independence. Such has been the patient's sufferance where a mother's bread, instant potatoes, milk at a checkout line, where her three children pleading for bubble gum and their father, where the three minutes she steals to page through a tabloid, needing to believe even stars' lives are as joyful and as bruised. Our repeated petitions have been answered only by repeated injury, where her second job serving an executive absorbed in his Wall Street Journal at a sidewalk cafe shadowed by skyscrapers, where the shadows of the fortune he won and the family he lost, where his loss and the lost, where father in a coal town who can't mine a life anymore because too much and too little has happened for too long. A history of repeated injuries and usurpations, where the grit of his main streets blacked out windows and graffitied truths, where a street in another town, lined with royal palms, at home with a Peace Corps couple who collect African art, where their dinner party talk of wines wielded picket signs and burned draft cards, where what they know, it's time to do more than read the New York Times, buy fair trade coffee and organic corn. In every stage of these oppressions, we have petitioned for regress. Where the farmer who grew that corn, who plows into his couch as worn as his back by the end of the day, where his TV set blaring news having everything, nothing to do with the field dust in his eyes and his son nested in the ache of his arms. Where his son, where a black teenager who drove too fast or too slow, talked too much or too little, moved too quickly but not quick enough, with a blast of the bullet leaving the gun, with the guilt of, and the grief of the cop who wished he hadn't shot. We mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. We mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. We're the dead, we're the living amid flicker of vigil candlelight. We're in a dim cell with an inmate reading Dostoevsky, where his crime, his sentence, his amends. We're the mending of ourselves and others. We're Buddhists serving soup at a shelter alongside a stockbroker. We're each other's shelter and hope, a widow's 50 cents in a collection plate and a golfer's $10,000 pledge for the cure. We hold these truths to be self-evident. We're the cure for the hatred caused by despair. We're the good morning of a bus driver who remembers our name, the tattooed man who gives up his seat on the subway, where every door held open like a smile when we look into each other's eyes the way we behold the moon. We're the moon with the promise of one people, one breath declaring to one another, I see you, I need you. I am you. Thank you, Richard Blanco.
Richard Blanco practiced civil engineering for more than 20 years. He's now an associate professor of creative writing at his alma mater, Florida International University. His books of nonfiction and poetry include Looking for the Gulf Motel and, most recently, How to Love a Country. Special thanks this week to the Chautauqua Institution. And in these days around Thanksgiving, we also have a tradition of thanking people who make On Being possible behind the scenes. They include Heather Wong, our transcriber, Tom Fletcher, Jim Hessian, and the team at Ellie's Cleaning, partners in our Loring Park space, Alfonso Wenker and Trina Olson, and their colleagues at Team Dynamics for leading our internal placemaking work. Also special friends Jim Bear Jacobs and Bob Klanderud, Rachel Levin, Padraig Otuma, Miriam Forela, Brian Carmody, also Jerry Colonna and the wonderful people at Reboot, Kristen Jones-Pierre and her team at Fagri Baker Daniels, Heidi Grindy, Mary Warner, Hannah Erickson, Michelle Wagman, and our partners at Clifton Larson Allen. We're also so grateful for Aaron Dowd, Janine Wright, Dane Cardiel, and the team at Simplecast, Christy Cecharossi, Thomas Yerl, Jess Hendricks, Barbara Hebert, and all of the team at Common Media, Leah Endres, Justine Corsadiwal, Cameron Musar, Brian Palmer, and all the team at Nation Builder, and PRX, the public radio exchange, including Carrie Hoffman, John Barth, Kathleen Unwin, Sean Nesbitt, and Paloma Orozco. Our funding part named at the end of this show make everything possible and lastly a bow to our small but mighty board of directors who we call our wisdom council jay coles condom mason and srinija srinivasan thank you Project is Chris Hegel, Lily Percy, Marie Sambalay, Aaron Farrell, Lauren Gordal, Tony Liu, Aaron Kalasako, Kristen Lin, Prophet Adewu, Eddie Gonzalez, Lillian Vo, Lucas Johnson, Damon Lee, Suzette Burley, Zach Rose, Siri Grassley, Nicole Finn, Colleen Sheck, and Christiane Wartell. The On Being Project is located on Dakota land. Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. And the last voice that you hear singing at the end of our show is Cameron Kinghorn. On Being is an independent production of the On Being Project. It's distributed to public radio stations by PRX. I created this show at American Public Media. Our funding partners include the Fetzer Institute, helping to build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at Fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, dedicated to reconnecting ecology, culture, and spirituality. Supporting organizations and initiatives that uphold a sacred relationship with life on Earth. Learn more at Calliopeia.org. Humanity United, advancing human dignity at home and around the world. Find out more at humanityunited.org, part of the Omidyar Group. The George Family Foundation, in support of the Civil Conversations Project. The Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives. And the Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education. On Being is produced by On Being Studios in Minneapolis, Minnesota.